From the Sydney Opera House, this is Ideas at the House, and I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. This week, we have a conversation with Deborah Lipstadt, recorded at the 2019 Antidote Festival. Before 1996, Deborah Lipstadt was a well-regarded professor of modern Jewish history. That was before the infamous Holocaust denier, David Irving, decided to sue her for libel. Deborah and her publisher took him on, and in a blockbuster trial that made headlines all around the world, they scored a landmark legal victory, and Deborah became an internationally recognised defender of the truth of the Holocaust. Her most recent book is called Anti-Semitism, Here and Now, and here she's speaking with Benjamin Law. Now, Deborah, you grew up in New York City, the middle child of two immigrants, is that right? That's correct. One from Canada and the other from Germany. Tell me about the earliest memories of life with your family. Uh, I remember the Upper West Side very vividly. When we lived there in the, you know, starting in the late 40s, early 50s, it really was a neighborhood. Mm. And you'd go out in the street, you'd meet people, you'd see people. It was very exciting and very freeing. We lived right near Central Park, and I thought of Central Park as our backyard and front yard and played in it and loved it. Uh, I love my time in New York. And your parents, Erwin and Miriam, is that right? They met at the synagogue? They met at synagogue. My father had come as a young man in the late 20s. His, both his parents had passed away. And uh, the financial situation for uh, a, a young man in Germany was not very promising uh, during the you know Weimar, late Weimar uh, Republic. And so he came to New York. He was a modern Orthodox Jew, as was my mother. She had come to New York. She had immigrated from Canada to Detroit, grown up in Detroit, and then also come to New York. And they met in the synagogue. And what were your earliest memories of the rhythms of Jewish life growing up? Jewish life was one of the drummers to whose beat we marched, with apologies to uh, Thoreau. Um, And it was just part of our life, as was movies, and as we got older, theater, concerts, libraries, free exhibitions in New York. We didn't have a lot of money, but New York was a great place for museums, for exhibitions, all sorts of things. My mother would be very talented at finding those things. Uh, So it it was a good life. And with that in mind, I think of your work, which has touched on so much about anti-Semitism, what are your earliest memories or your earliest understandings of what anti-Semitism was? Very vague, very, very vague. It wasn't like we experienced it. It wasn't like we lived in fear. We were very secure. I mean, it was a, a, a neighborhood with a lot of Jews and it was a very comfortable existence. My father didn't, uh, obviously lost many friends. He brought over most of his immediate family, but that was before I was born. Um, I knew we were friendly with people who came from Germany, you know, that there was an immigrant community, but I didn't, refugee actually, as it was called then, but I didn't really understand the full implications of that. One of my earliest memories comes, I would say I was 10, 11, something like that. And it's going to sound strange to your to your listeners, we were, I was in a store with my father, and he wore a hat, a very formal German gentleman, as in the 50s, you didn't wear your kippah, your, you know, you wore a hat, a well-dressed gentleman wore a hat. And, um, but somehow the store owner either knew we were Jewish, or my father had been buying something for the synagogue, or some, I don't know, whatever it was, he knew we were Jewish. And he said to my father, oh, Mr. Lipstadt, you should know, some of my best friends are Jews. And I heard that and we walked out. I said, isn't that nice, Daddy, that some of his best friends are Jews? My father said something which I don't think I fully understood at the time, but I certainly understood later. He said, did you ever hear someone boast some of my best friends are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? 
if you're boasting, some of my best friends are Jews, some of my best friends are black, some of my best friends are gays, or just saying, look at me, I'm so good, I'm friendly with the, with the good ones, or some, I'm friendly with the good ones, mm. not the other one. It's a coded anti-Semitism, it's isn't it? It's a philo-Semitism that really is a kind of anti-Semitism. Mm. Um, the man may not have thought of it as anti-Semitism at all. You know, it's like the person who's in trouble with the law and mm. says, I need, a, I need the best lawyer. I'm going to get myself a smart Jewish lawyer. Now, if the, the lawyer can't save the man because he's guilty of sin or however, what for whatever reason, that smart Jewish lawyer becomes that no good Jewish lawyer. Mm. Get a smart lawyer and ignore the fact whether he's black, brown, purple, or polka dotted. It kind of reflects sometimes what people miss in forms of bigotry and hatred in that there is a spectrum and there are different manifestations. It's not just one single manifestation of racism or anti-Semitism, but it can manifest in different ways. In many different ways. And with that in mind, let's look at the most extreme form of that manifestation, which is the Holocaust when it comes to anti-Semitism. When did you first learn about that? I sort of knew um, at our Passover Seder, we would always do a small commemoration for the, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which began the night of the second night of Passover. And my father would read a, a prayer in English, and he'd get very emotional. And when you're a kid, you're, when your father gets emotional, that's very memorable. Uh, but, you know, it was just something that was around. It wasn't talked about a lot, nor was it hush-hush. But uh, somehow you just knew it, it, it was there. And then as I got older, I learned more about it. But I never really formally learned about it. It wasn't like we had classes on it. It wasn't like we had lectures. And I think it was only when I was in high school or in later years, maybe even college, that I fully understood the extent of, of one out of every three Jews on the face of the earth uh, had been murdered. That, was, that struck me and stayed with me. And then later in your professional career, what prompted you to apply the academic lens to anti-Semitism? When I was in graduate school, I was studying modern Jewish history, and certainly that was there. But I wasn't looking at it specifically. But it was the late 60s, early 70s, when the politics of cultural identity, uh, black power, the women's movement, uh, emergence of uh, Stonewall and the, and the uh, gay uh, LGBTQ, though we didn't use the term then, uh, revolution. And people began to look at their specific identities. Whereas in the 50s, I mean, even though we were an or modern Orthodox Jewish home, observant, et cetera, the, 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 there wasn't a great emphasis on proving your difference, demonstrating your difference, you know. And then suddenly when I was in college in the, in the mid to late 60s in the re Vietnam era, uh, but especially the influence of, of the civil rights movement, and um, people began to look at their specific identities not as something to hide, but as something to celebrate. Um, so I began to think more about the positive, but also the negative, you know, the the um, Holocaust. The other thing that I think influenced me to think about the Holocaust was by the late 60s, it was beginning of the Soviet Jewry movement, mm. the movement in the Soviet Union of Jews who wanted permission to leave, who wanted to go to Israel, who were being persecuted for their Jewish identity, for wanting to learn Hebrew, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that began to resonate very strongly with me. 
Before we dive in deeper, maybe we can take a step back and I want to ask you an almost basic childlike question, which is Ask how, do, away. how do we define anti-Semitism? What are the parameters that you use when discussing anti-Semitism? Um, there are different forms of anti-Semites. And actually the same thing can be said for, for racism and other forms of, of prejudice. There's the extremist you know, the, the Ku Klux Klaner, if you're talking about racism or anti-Semitism, the Ku Klux Klan was both, was opposed to both blacks and of course to Jews as well. Um, the extremists, the Nazi, you know, you, we, we recognize those people. We recognize the man who went into the Pittsburgh synagogue and murdered 11 people. We recognize them and it's easy to condemn them. I'm not uh, diminishing the condemnation, but that's an easy one. It's when you move a little further along the spectrum. One category is what I call the dinner party anti-Semite or the salon anti-Semite. The person who's, who would never think of harming a Jew, never think of say, using a bad word, but at dinner might say, um, oh, we hired a new associate in our law firm or a new person in our business. She's an Orthodox Jew, but she's very honest. You know? <laughs> um, uh, you know, and you can you can extrapolate from that in terms of racism and other things, as other prejudices as well. Um, or you have the anti-Semitic enabler, the person who may or may not be an anti-Semite, you know, uh, but whose actions, whose comments, whose behavior enables anti the anti-Semite makes them feel, oh, I've got a green light. I've got to go ahead. I've got the wink, wink, nod, nod. And I think we see that in some of our political leaders today. And how is anti-Semitism changing as time goes on? Are we seeing new forms of it now? Uh, on some level, I like to talk about it as same old, an old text in new bindings. Um, the text is the same. The memes, the tropes, the stereotypes have remained constant for millennia. Uh, Jews are rich. Jews are powerful. Jews are conspiratorial. It's not just, you know, that's what makes anti-Semitism so different from some, most of the other isms, is that um, you look at the, let's compare it to racism for a moment. Uh, the racist looks at the person of color and says, if that person moves into our, with quotation marks around it, neighborhood, or they send their kids to our kids' schools, again, quotation marks around our, um, they'll bring down the school. They'll lessen the school. The school won't be as good. Our neighbor, our home values will go down. The racist punches down. The anti-Semite says those Jews are conniving. Those Jews are rich, uh, smart, but powerful, but always in a malicious, conniving, self-serving way. So the uh, the anti-Semite, who usually is the racist, it's it's one and the same person, punches up. Mm. So you get the the Jew as not only someone I dislike but someone who is dangerous. And to what extent is this form of hatred, this anti-Semitism, 
compounded by time passing as we get you know as time goes on the holocaust seems to be a distant memory for, for increasing numbers of people does that give rise to anti-semitism because we actually there is a kind of disremembering i think i think it may give rise i'll tell you the truth uh, today in the past four or five years we've seen a great rise in anti-semitic incidents and expressions of anti-semitism racism as well of course um, I, but I don't know if there are more anti-Semites around today or they just feel emboldened. Mm. Uh, the political leaders, including in my own country, in England, in Poland, in Hungary, in many places, who sort of encourage divisiveness, who make it sound like it's okay to express these views. Let's talk, let's talk about leadership for a moment then. That old argument of freedom of speech, which is something that is very, very important and must be protected. This is a live conversation in your country as well as here. The, the limits of freedom of speech versus the limits of people's protection uh, against discrimination, where, where do we draw those lines? It's a very tough thing. Um, I am a pretty strong freedom of speech supporter. Um, I feel very strongly about that. In fact, so much so that I think in in most countries, I know certain countries it's an exception, um, I'm against laws outlawing Holocaust denial, even though I have had my run-ins and had my life turned upside down by deniers. Um, because I think, you know, everyone should have a, a right to say what they want. However, there's a caveat there. Uh, just because the person says something awful, doesn't mean you have to give them a platform. Mm. You know, so uh, doesn't mean you have to print their article in the news, the, the op-ed they write, the uh, column they write in the newspaper, so that there's a responsibility on the rest of us. The person, you know, it's if the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? So they're still getting to exercise their freedom of speech. Right, but I don't have to give them a platform. Mm. You know, and at one point there were deniers trying to put ads in college newspapers. It was very common. And one editor said, oh, uh, we have to, we're great believers in freedom of speech, therefore we have to publish these ads and publish these letters. And my comment was, someone else said this originally, so we have to, the editor said, we have to keep an open mind and publish these things. And I said, you know, sometimes someone's mind can be so open, their brains fall out. Mm -hmm. um, they, the same newspaper wouldn't publish an ad for an X-rated movie. It wouldn't publish an ad, a letter which was overtly racist. But someone who said that the Holocaust didn't happen, for which there is no history, for which there is no evidence, for which there is no narrative, for which there are no witnesses, um, that was, became something, oh, I have to keep an open mind. So um, I'm a great believer in freedom of speech, but I also believe it comes with it a great responsibility on the rest of us not to provide platforms. Earlier, you mentioned that Holocaust deniers had turned your life upside down. For people who aren't actively engaged in this discussion, I think they might be surprised that Holocaust denialism is still such a powerful and present force. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that experience and what that told you about the state of anti-Semitism now. I wrote a book. It came out in 93. It was my second book. I was fairly early in my career. And it was about Holocaust denial. 
And it was a way to explore it and to argue that Holocaust denial at its heart is a form of anti-Semitism because there's no documents, there's no proof, there's no evidence, there's no narrative. It's, it's all these people who live far afterwards making up these claims, et cetera. And if for deniers to be right, who would have to be wrong? The victims, uh, the bystanders, thousands of historians, and of course the perpetrators. The perpetrators never say it didn't happen. In any case, I wrote the book, and in the book I briefly mentioned a man named David Irving, a Holocaust denier, uh, tried to get into uh, Australia, was denied entry um, because of his denial and his riling up of this hatred, et cetera. Um, and then the book was published in England. Rights were bought and published in England. And uh, he sued me for libel, for calling him a Holocaust denier. He claimed he wasn't a Holocaust denier. Now, it was so weird because he was a man who said, you know, I'm going to sink the battleship to Auschwitz. More, more people died in the backseat of Senator Edward Kennedy's car. You know, he had that incident with a woman died in his car. Um, they never were gassed at, at Auschwitz. So in other words, more people died. One person died in his car. Gas chambers never existed. And many comments like that, including many racist comments, terribly racist comments. Um, he sued me for libel. And the way libel law works in the United Kingdom, as I, I would assume it works here as well the same way, I, I had to prove the truth of what I said, whereas in the United States, he would have to prove the falsehood of what I said. So the burden was on me, the onus was on me to prove the truth. And if I hadn't fought him, he would have won by default. Mm -hmm. And I fought him, I fought him very strongly. I had a great legal team that did it. And we didn't, we didn't prove the Holocaust happened. What we did was trace his footnotes. So each time he said, I can prove that this, they weren't gas chambers. I can prove that Hitler never did this. I can prove that there were no Jews. We would trace his footnotes and invariably would find, in virtually every time we traced, that there was some sort of invention, distortion, reverse of dates, putting someone at a meeting who wasn't at a meeting. So much so that the judge in his judgment uh, called him a neo-Nazi polemicist. Mm. Need I say more, you know? Wow. So you were corroding his integrity through that process, but that sounds like an exhausting process for you. It was an exhausting process. It took about, I would say, from beginning to end, about six years. Mm. Um, I was, I was, uh, we, we, we assembled a terrific team of historians. It's really why I call my book on the trial, History on Trial, now called Denial, because there was a movie about it. Um, but uh, we really showed how bankrupt that is now. And it, it, that's what I call hardcore denial. And today there is no serious person who would say there's anything to hardcore denial. Yes, the neo-Nazis rely on it. Yes, even people on the left, Jeremy Corbyn keeps company with deniers. There are people in the Muslim world who, who, who use it as a, a, a tool against Jews, against Israel. But, but it pretty much laid it to rest. What there is is softcore denial. Mm. which you see in a Poland, which you see in a Ukraine, you see in a Hungary, where you turn the perpetrators into victims. You know, there were nationalists in those countries who engaged in horrific things, and you, you turn them into victims, and we see that happening, and that's quite disturbing. This conversation is important because it recognises the power of speech, the power of language, which makes me think that right now, often the Holocaust fascism is invoked with current political events, making parallels um, to describe, for instance, the policies of the US government, even here in Australia, when, it, when we're talking about forced deportations um, and asylum seekers. 
is it ever appropriate to compare contemporary events to the Holocaust, to fascism, to Nazism, or should those events and ideologies be left out of comparison? No, I think it is fair to compare. I mean, that's how historians learn. That's how historians, this is like that. It's like that to a certain extent. I remember a visit I paid many years ago, my first trip to South Africa, and I was in a small Holocaust memorial. And there were two pictures hanging side by side. One was an iconic picture of a Nazi doctor with a caliper in his hand measuring the nose of a little girl to see if it was a Jewish nose or not. And behind was the chart of what kind of groups. This was a Negro nose, you know, using the terminology of the poster. This was a Jewish nose. This was an Aryan nose, et cetera. Next to it was a picture of a little girl standing on a chair, and I think the, the man next to her was in a white coat, so in, indicating either a doctor or someone of professional thing. And she had a pencil through her hair. And it was what South Africans used to call under apartheid the pencil test. If the pencil fell out of your hair, then you were white. If it stayed in your hair, then you were of mixed, you were colored. Remember, in mm. South African, under apartheid, there were blacks, coloreds, whites. Uh, it's, of course, a ridiculous kind of thing. In fact, there were children who were taken away from their biological parents because they didn't pass the pencil test. So you had two kinds of discrimination which were parallel to each other. The difference was that in South Africa, even though uh, many black Africans died under apartheid mistreatment and, and terrible working conditions, et cetera, uh, white South Africans needed those black Africans to make them rich, to enrich the country, to mine the diamonds, to mine the gold, to clean their children's behinds, whatever it might have been. Um, in Germany, the Jew was seen as utterly dispensable. Not only are more than dispensable, it was to the greater good that you got rid of them. So I think you make comparisons up to a point and you say, how is this the same? How is it different? Mm. The Armenian genocide, about which we don't talk really enough at all, um, which the Turks continue to deny. Um, the Armenian genocide, if, a, if they found an Armenian Christian child, Muslims could adopt that child and raise that child as a Muslim. In Germany, a child of smallest age who was of Jewish blood, again, blood in quotation marks, was to be killed. So there are, there are similarities, there are differences. In terms of the detention camps in my country, and I know here you've had that issue of deporting of undocumented immigrants, I think, let me speak about what my country, because I know that situation better. The separation of children from parents is horrific, horrific. It's traumatizing to the parent. It's traumatizing to the child. And even if it's just for a few weeks, the child remembers that uh, and, and I think is shaped by it. Is it the same as the Holocaust? I don't think so. But something doesn't have to be the same as the, as the Holocaust to be utterly horrific and utterly wrong. So I think comparisons sometimes are made too glibly. Now, um, there is an area in which I think there's a where we can compare what's going on today with the 1930s, the early 30s. And that is, certainly in my country, the attack on the judiciary. 
you know, when when President Trump got a decision that he didn't like, he said, oh, it's a Mexican judge. Well, the judge happened to have been born in the United States to parents of Hispanic origin or the attacks on the press. You can disagree with the press, but the lying press. Hitler used to talk about the lying press. Uh, although anyone who disagrees with me should leave, go mm. back to where they came from. He recently said about some members of Congress who, with whom I disagree on many of the things they said. But one of them was born in Cleveland. One was born ten, five miles from where he was born you know, in Queens, New York. So this whole idea that if you're, if you don't believe as I do, you should be sent away, you should be sent back, you should leave, is very frightening and smacks of a fascisty kind of orientation. When having these conversations, it's really important to be specific and nuanced, it sounds like, to know exactly what you're talking about so it doesn't become something bigger than it is. And it makes me think that often when people are having conversation about Israel or Israeli government policies, it's so easy for that conversation to veer into anti-Semitism. Is it actually possible to have one conversation without Abs- it absolutely. becoming that? You know, if you read Haaretz, the daily newspaper in Israel, or you better yet, go to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and you'll see that conversation. Often it's yelling, one political side yelling at the Sounds other. Sounds like Australian yeah, parliament. Right. <laughs> um, but, but of course that conversation is going on. Sit on an Israeli bus and you'll hear that conversation going on, disagreement or in a coffee shop. Um, the difference, I think, comes about when there is a a myopic kind of focus on this human rights problem as opposed to all others. That doesn't mean that someone who is concerned about this problem has to earn their bona fides by being concerned by about every other problem. But when there's a sense that this is the worst one, this is the only one, this is the, and you don't worry about the Rohingya, you don't worry about women in Saudi Arabia and so many other examples. Or as happened to me recently, um, a person who's, uh, I, as I discovered through the conversation, is quite opposed uh, to the existence of the state of Israel, said to me, you know, Israel was born in sin and therefore doesn't have a right to exist. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, in 47, 48, uh, they chased all the Palestinian Arabs out. And I said, well, that's not exactly correct. Uh, many of those Palestinian Arabs left at the urging of their imams or Arabic-speaking uh, radio coming from Transjordan and other places, which said, leave now we will defeat the Jews and then you'll come back, you'll get their orchards and their homes and their businesses, et cetera. Um, but it is true that some were chased out. There were some. Um, so uh, he said, well, that that means that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. I said, you know, let's put that in a, in a larger historical context and let's think of other countries that have sins in their founding history. And let's start with the United States of America. Slavery, the treatment of Native Americans, Canada, the treatment of what's called the First Nation, the indigenous people, Australia. Any colonial nation, really. Any, uh, uh, New Zealand, you know. Um, and uh, I said, now no one, you know, the history in, here in Australia, and I've learned this over the many years I've been coming here, of treatment of the aboriginals, of the indigenous people, is, is horrific. But no one says, or no one in the mainstream says, that doesn't mean Australia doesn't have a right to exist to its mm. national identity. So it's when the double standard is applied that you begin to think what's going on here, what's happening. And on the other side of the conversation, I wonder to what extent we can critique anti-Semitism that might exist in Muslim communities, that might exist in Muslim-majority nations, without it becoming 
Islamophobic. Right. Well, I think it's very important. I think, you know, it's the, to quote uh, uh, the second President Bush, whom I don't usually quote, but on this one, the bigotry of low expectations. You know, I can't quote the Muslim community. I can't criticize their anti-Semitism. There certainly is anti-Semitism. In fact, the UN finally just recognized it this week and was critical of it. Now, there are Islamist extremists much of the uh, attacks, for instance, in Europe on, Jew on Jewish institutions have come from Islamist extremists. In the United States, they've come generally from far-right wingers who hate Muslims as much as as well as Jews. Um, but there all there also is within, and I want to be very careful here. I'm not drawing with a large brush. I'm not condemning everyone at all because that would be entirely wrong and incorrect. But there are segments within certain Muslim communities of expressions of anti-Semitism, uh, contempt for Jews, which may never lead to action. But the thing to remember is that all genocide begins with words. Not those who speak the words don't always act on the words, but anybody who acts on it, whether you're thinking about Rwanda, whether you're thinking about uh, Armenian genocide, we think about the former Yugoslavia, um, it always begins with words. And is it my imagination or is it true that um, in countries like the United States, often the same white supremacists who are anti-Semites are often Islamophobes? Well. Absolutely, absolutely. They, they. In fact, is it, it, it combines. They adhere to what is known as white replacement theory or white Christian re replacement theory, and what they argue is that there is a plan to replace white Christians in the United States and certainly in Europe uh, with black people, with brown people, with Muslims. Now, none of these people, says the person, the, the far right winger who is espousing this theory, none of these groups are smart enough to do this on their own. There is someone behind them engineering this replacement. And who is that group? The Jew, whether in the form of George Soros, whether in the form of, of Jews, whatever, in any form. What was the killer, the murderer in Pittsburgh crying as the SWAT team was bringing him down? you will not destroy the white race. Or in Charlottesville, just, what is it, two, three years ago, um, the march in Charlottesville, what did they cry? Jews will not replace us. What did they mean by that? You will not engineer this replacement because the Jew becomes, again, remember the conspiracy theory that's part of anti-Semitism. The Jew is conspiring to do this behind the scenes with these people in front. So what's going on here? Is it complete emboldenment by leadership or is there something else? In the book you write, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, that there's a was, was a dramatic rise in anti-Semitism since about 2000 with a particular uptick since 2016 that seems to parallel the rise of Trump. President Trump has played on those divisions. You know, when he said there are nice people on both sides in Charlottesville, but I think it goes back further than that. I think a lot of it can be traced to the anger many Americans felt, the anger, the dislocation at having a black president and a black family in the White House. Mm. And there's been a real failure to, to, to pay attention to that. Uh, I think one of the things that's so important today, and you asked earlier in, in our conversation about what makes it different, 
is today we see anti-Semitism on the right and we see anti-Semitism on the left. It's the same anti-Semitism, but expressed by different groups. And what we also see is people on the right are very correct, see it correctly on the left. And people on the left are very quick to see it on the right, but they fail to see it right next to them. Let's expand on that a little bit more. What's the difference between how it manifests in the right and how it manifests in the left, even though they share the similarity and the basic anti-Semitism? Well, I think it's on the far right. It's this white replacement theory. And even if you don't adhere to the idea that there's a conspiracy, you're disturbed by this movement of white people, black people. People don't look like you who want white Anglo-Saxon Protestants into your communities, into your towns, into your villages, whatever it might be. Um, on the left, uh, it, um, I would say, take someone like Jeremy Corbyn, those people around him, or people in the United States as well, and certainly in, I'm sure in Australia as well, that some people, and I emphasize some, on the progressive left, uh, their view of prejudice is refracted through a prism. And that prism, remember, prism bends light. Um, and that prism has certain facets, ethnicity, class, power. So they look at the Jew and they see a white person, even though the person on the right looks at the Jew and doesn't see a white person. You know, when, as I said, when the, the, the uh, killer, the murderer in Pittsburgh yells at the Jews, you will not bring down the white race. So in his eyes, they're not white. But for the person on the left, he sees the Jew as a white person sees the Jew as privileged, even though there are many Jews who are not privileged. And, you know, if you if you control for education, Jews are uh, happen to value education and um, and they're right exactly where people with similar levels of education would be. But they see a wealthy person. Ipso facto, they have power. Mm. Therefore, they couldn't possibly be victims. And then the person on the progressive left, certainly someone like Jeremy Corbyn says, and me, moi, you know, to quote Miss Piggy, um, how could I been a liberal? My mother, from my mother's milk, I in, in, inhaled liberal attitudes, liberal values. So then somehow it must be inherent within my structure to the, not be an anti-Semite, exactly. not be a and, racist. And inherent in your structure not to be a victim. Therefore, if you can't be a victim and I can't be a perpetrator, there must be something wrong with you and that you're making this up. You're doing this to bring me down. It's a mixture of defensiveness and complacency that you're describing. I think even stronger than complacency, uh, self-justification, hmm. you know, and then you turn the accusation on the person making the claim in a way that you wouldn't if the person were a person of color or a gay person or even possibly a Muslim. Um, and not to say that every person who claims racism or claims Islamophobia or claims uh, homophobia that they've been victims of it is, is absolutely correct. Um, but in most, but certainly the, the default position of the person on the progressive left wouldn't be to dismiss it. But if you look at Corbyn and the people around him, I'm using Corbyn as a stand-in for, for a much larger group of people, or some people in the United States, when they hear these claims... They say, oh, it, it's impossible. The Jew, a victim of prejudice, that's impossible. They're only doing this to bring down the Labor Party. They're only doing this to defend Israel. They're only doing it with, they have an ulterior motive. I know that you're a visitor here in Australia, but here in our country, 
there is definitely an upswing in anti-Semitism. Our treasurer, one of the highest politicians in the country for the first time, comes from the Jewish faith. There have been definitely anti-Semitic conversations about him. We've seen swastikas sprayed outside Jewish nursing homes. Are we part of a bigger global phenomenon or do these things come from grassroots? And if so, what are the ways that we can tackle anti-Semitism both structurally and individually? One time I would have said they come from grassroots, but today we have social media. I love social media. I use social media. I just posted pictures of me standing in front of the Sydney Opera House. But today there's no such thing as a lone wolf. A hater in Christchurch, New Zealand in San Diego County, in Pittsburgh, in London, can all be quoting from the same person, reading the same material. It used to be if I said something horrible to one person, they could say it to another, uh, maybe five people, and they would say it to 10. So by the end of the month, 100 people had heard it, 200 people had heard it, something like that. Today, you put something up, it goes like that. So that um, it's not just grassroots. There's, There's hatred. And that hatred flourishes when there are people who fail, leaders who fail to condemn it, leaders who encourage it. And I think that's some of what we're seeing today. Deborah Lipstadt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Deborah Lipstadt joined us at Antidote Festival in 2019. You can check our show notes for links to a video of that event. Next week's episode of Ideas at the House features award-winning Irish columnist, literary editor and critic, Fintan O'Toole. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.